Well, church, as promised, you could turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, again, as we've talked about, there's this interesting juxtaposition between this high that we'll have here in a moment as we have baptism and what we're talking about. But once again, this is, this is the nature of our experience. This is the nature of our faith. This constant tension of the joy of salvation while also at the same time always remembering the need for salvation. This is actually one of the fatal flaws of contemporary evangelism, offering the promise of a Savior while at the same time never telling people what they need to be saved from. It's believing without repentance. But we could talk about that for a long time. This morning, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. May the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come before this, allow your Holy Spirit to be what illuminates this text Certainly, cartoon images from children's storybook Bible about properly placed leaves and a talking snake and an apple are the things that crowd into our minds when we hear this. But Lord, let us go to your word. Let us understand the truth of this moment, how it's necessary for understanding all things. We ask that you do this for us in the name of your Son. Amen. So this is really, if you think about it, the bleak crisis of all history. This is the lowest point of all mankind, of all creation. This is the source of suffering. This quick interaction, this quick moment, this, this time where the serpent confronts Eve, and then Eve gives into temptation, and that God confronts Adam and Eve, is really the bottoming out of all of creation. 
it's necessary to understand. It's necessary to know. And one of the things that I think, as, as I alluded to earlier, is that the familiarity of a text ought not to cause us to overlook it. We know that God created things. We know that man fell. And then sometimes we are so often so quick to move on to the next thing. But these are the foundational, fundamental, necessary aspects of Scripture that must be crystal clear to us before we take one step further. Again, these are the kind of things that we've read about in Genesis 1 through 3, that God is God, that God created all things, that God created man and woman in his image, that God created man and woman, that God created people to have dignity, that God created people to have this creation mandate, to have earth, uh, dominion and fill the earth. These kind of things are the things that we need to understand to appreciate the compass heading for our life. God's good plan for his creation. And if we don't take all of these things into account, our compass heading might have a general direction that is in the right area. But as you know, that first step or that second step, if you're a few degrees off on your compass heading, don't seem that bad. But extrapolate that over 100 yards, over a mile, or an entire life's journey and you find yourself in a very, very different direction and destination than you had intended to set out for. And so understanding the good of Genesis 1 and 2, and understanding the bad of Genesis 3, and as we'll get to in a couple of weeks, the eventual good promise in Genesis 3, are necessary to understand all things. But the first thing that we encounter as we turn to Genesis 3 is the lie of the fall. The fall... This, this colloquially understood moment when mankind fell from innocence, fell from favor with God, fell from relationship with, with him, was predicated on a lie. And we'll talk about that in these first five verses. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. What is this serpent? Who is this serpent? When was the last time you encountered a serpent? I was in Virginia this last week, and I have to remind myself when I'm down there that there's more snakes than there are up here. And the snakes down there can hurt you a lot more than the snakes up here can hurt you. And we turned over a canoe, and the first few days we turned over the canoe, there's mice in the canoe. And that caused much screeching from some of the children. Well, after about three or four days, I turned over the canoe and no mice came out, but a very content-looking snake was in this canoe. And as happy as this snake looked, that was me simply anthropomorphizing the snake, assuming it was happy because there was no mice. But the snake did not comment on its happiness, nor did it smile. I don't think that snakes have the muscular structure to, to, to smile. But one of the things that we can appreciate about snakes is they are crafty, they are sneaky, and that's one of the reasons why we don't like them. And I can even see some people looking slightly uncomfortable as I continue to talk about snakes and how they move, and I'm kind of getting pleasure about that. But we know that snakes on their own are crafty. But was this an ordinary snake? No, it's going to talk here in a second. So who is the snake? What is the serpent? It is a serpent. Notice what it says here. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. So this is a serpent that God has created. 
But it's more than that. It's more than that. Something that we know as we continue to look through Scripture is that Satan, is that his demons are able to take control of, possess, if you will, utilize other things. When you see, uh, when you see evil forces in animals, most clearly is you see the, that Jesus, when he casts out the demons in the, of the Gerasene demoniac, what does he put them into? He puts them into pigs. We could talk about pigs for a while. No one gets offended by that. But do we see animals that, that, that demons are able to possess? And so we see that here also. It is a serpent, but it's also Satan. We have this actually clarified explicitly when we get all the way to the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 9. In Revelation chapter 12, it talks about one of the examples of, of, of the culmination of history. And it says, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this serpent, Scripture makes very clear, is not just an ordinary serpent that was out to get Adam and Eve. He didn't, it wasn't as if Adam named the serpent Snake and Snake didn't like he was named Snake and so he had a vendetta against Adam. There is more to it than that. And again, these sound like simple things. These sound like givens. But that's because we've heard this a thousand times. We need to drive into this and understand exactly what's happening. A real snake, but also a snake being used by the evil one. And he said to the woman, and continuing in verse 1, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What does he say? Think about this question that Satan is asking. This is, this is the first interaction that we see in Scripture of evil. This is the first words where, where the goodness of creation is being perverted and twisted. And like a, a, a beautiful, clean slate, we have a black mar that immediately pops up in the middle of it. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice how Satan is trying to obscure or confuse or obfuscate the clearly articulated law that God gave to Adam and Eve. God gave this command of you can eat from any tree except for this one. And Satan turns it around and says, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Purposefully confusing. But also notice what he does. He points out the negative. He points out the negative. You shall not eat. Isn't this the way, not just of Satan, but of the world? Isn't this the way, not just of the world, but sometimes us? Of all the freedoms that we have, the one, the negative, the not, that is the thing that's focused on and is used as an argument or an apologetic to say, this whole thing isn't worth it. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. Can you believe? Why would you want to be part of a religion that does that? Why would you want to be a part of a church that does that? Why would you want to follow a God that says you can't do things? And, and indeed, when you, look at, when you think about the way that people talk about Scripture, and sometimes the way that Christians talk about the Old Testament in particular, the law specifically, it's often characterized or given a caricature of being a list of things that you cannot do. 
And it's just simply not true. It's the same lie that Satan was bringing before Eve. God told Eve that, and Adam that they could eat of everything but this one thing. Certainly there were other commands, other expectations, as John clearly articulated last week in the creation mandate. But as far as the negative, what you can't do, it was one thing out of an entire garden of things that were positive. Satan points out the negative. He, he starts to, to weasel in. He starts to slither in. He starts to wedge in the idea of doubt and the idea of not. And I don't know Eve's initial state. That's something that we don't get this perfect picture of in the text. But I know that for us, that's something that's probably just in our sinful state. When we're told no, all of a sudden, the thing that we want to do more than anything else is do that thing. Don't touch that. As a child... There is no greater green light in the world to touch that than the words, don't touch that. And here's the thing. As adults, it's the same way. There's countless studies, and they're, they're great fun, but they illustrate the depravity of man, of, of these, these situations people get put in. And they're said, you know, you can sit down here, you can eat this, you can eat that, you can eat that. Uh, don't, eat, don't, don't take anything out of the fridge. And then the, the interviewer leaves, and on the hidden camera... The people go and they mess with the donut and they look at the banana and they drink the coffee and then eventually, after a few minutes, what do they do? They go and they peek in the fridge. And it happens to kids and it happens to older people and it happens to pastors and it happens to police officers and across the board, this is the way people respond to being told no. And this is how, this was the devil's tactic. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? But notice that Eve was paying attention to what God said in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. Eve got it. And she repeated the letter of the law right back to the serpent. She understood that, no, we can eat all this food, we just can't eat that food. We can eat all the fruit of the, the, the trees, just not that fruit of that tree. She understood it. But we also, and I think it's worth notice, notice, noticing here, that even this interaction is not good. Eve interacting with Satan is not good. Eve is not, the, the fact that Eve is winning a victory here in this initial interaction doesn't mean that this is a good thing that's happening. And we'll get, get to that here in a moment. So keep that in mind. Because things quickly go downhill. Look at verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan takes God's statement. He, he gets rid of the first line of argumentation, this first attempt at causing Adam and Eve to fall of saying that God has made this rule too strict, and he now requalifies God's statement. He says, it's not that you, you're not going to die. And the interesting thing is, he was right. Notice Eve's going to bite that fruit, and she isn't zapped by lightning. Eve's going to bite that fruit, and she's not going to keel over from anaphylactic shock. Eve's going to bite that apple. So there is a grain of truth in Satan's lie. And 
his, their eyes were opened. But of course, as we read earlier, their eyes were opened, and it wasn't to this great glorious reality, this equality with God. It was now to the shame and indignity of being simply a creature that has rebelled against his creator. So there's all these grains of truth. And once again, just like Satan's initial lie of kind of focusing on the not, focusing on the negative, is a common tactic of the world, a common tactic of even of our, our hearts and of our minds. This is a similar one too. A grain of truth that is coded in all of this insincere lie. You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. John Chrysostom, a commentator and a pastor in the early church, commented on this text this way. He said, do you see how the devil led her captive, handicapped her reasoning, and caused her to set her thoughts on goals beyond her real capabilities? Think about that. Caused her to set her thoughts on goals beyond her real capabilities. You shall be like God. That's, it's beyond her station. It's inappropriate for her. It's something that wasn't owed to her. It was something that was not given to her. She was a creature, and God was a creator. He goes on to say, in order that she might be puffed up with empty hopes and lose her hold on the advantages already accorded to her. The goodness of the garden a garden full of fruit, 99.99% of which she could enjoy. But now the 0.01% is what she was focused on. The goodness of being a creature that had all of her needs given to her, but now she was wondering, what's it like on the other side of the creator and creature dynamic? This gets back to this question that we talked about in the catechism, why did God allow man to be tempted? Now, to be fair, I'm not going to give this a full treatment. I'm simply going to default to another early church father when I talk about this. Why did God allow man to be tempted? Augustine said, I don't think that a man would deserve great praise if he had been able to live a good life for the simple reason that nobody tempted him to live a bad one. I don't think that a man would deserve great praise if he had been able to live a good life for the simple reason that nobody tempted him to live a bad one. Really what it comes down to is that God gave Adam a probationary period. God set before Adam and Eve the opportunity to be obedient and the opportunity to be disobedient. And they chose disobedience. And, but it comes down to, once again, this reality, as we touched on with the Catechism, as we quoted from Augustine here, that God's greatest glory and the greatest good that God would bring about came from creating Adam and Eve in a situation and in a state where they had a will that could choose good or that could choose evil. Of course, and as we'll get to, as we've mentioned already in the Catechism, that once they made that choice... The future was set. The template had been established. For in one man, all fell. We are not reborn. We are not born again as as new creatures as we are born naturally and given total free will where we can choose good. Every one of us is born in sin. All have sin and fall short of the glory of God. So when we talk about 
the bad news. This is the bad news. It is not a tabla rasa. It is not a blank slate with every new person that maybe this one can succeed. Maybe this one can achieve where Adam failed. Maybe this one can choose good where everyone else has chosen, chosen, chosen bad up until this point. Scripture is very clear that every one of us is in sin. Every one of us chooses sin. Every one of us has lies on our lips. Every one of us thoughts are evilly, evil continually, as it says in Romans chapter 3. Except for one. Except for one, and we'll talk about him later. The lie of the fall chipped away at Eve's faith in the truth and in God. The lie of the fall chipped away at Eve's faith in the truth and in God. These seem like subtle lies. Has God not said, your eyes will be opened? These are subtle lies, church. But subtle lies are lies. Subtle lies are as dangerous as big lies. Subtle lies take you off of the narrow path and quickly send you careening down the dangerous cliffs on either side. Satan's lies. We think of them today in hindsight, and we understand their significance. But in that moment before Eve, they were subtle lies. They were simple lies. They were crafty, slithery lies. So the lie of the fall then led to, of course, the sin of the fall. The sin of the fall. Then, so Satan said this, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. If you were to take your pencil and write in your Bible but you might be sanctified enough that you don't write in books. My own personal preference. Where would you draw the point where Eve went from innocent to where she went to fallen? Where would you make that line? Where would you draw a pencil mark that indicated very good to very bad? At what point did mankind and, by extension, all creation go from being good to being bad. To be fair, I think actually, it, we'd have to wait for Adam to take the fruit, but that's, let's, we'll wait for that here in a second. Where did Eve sin? Where did Eve fall? Was it so she took? Was it she ate? I think we all know that sin does not start with touch. That sin does not start with taste. Sin starts in our minds and in our hearts. And Eve sinned with her mind and her heart before she sinned with her hand and with her mouth. The woman saw the tree was good for food. That's the problem. God said no, and she saw it, and she said yes. That was the problem. At that point, a sovereign, holy God who could see into hearts and minds and knows every material and immaterial aspect of his creation knew that she had made a bad choice. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. The delight of the eyes and the desire of what comes next. I think we all understand, knows we know that this can be very dangerous. This is the problem of, 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 of our world, church. This is our problem. 
This is looking at that bottle and thinking, I know what's going to happen, but I don't, but, and, and I know what's going to happen next, but maybe not this time. It's looking at that computer monitor and looking at that mouse and knowing no one else is around and thinking, I know what this is going to be like, and I know what's going to happen, but I, I'm okay with that. It's beginning to allow that attitude of anger or bitterness or jealousy or something to foment in our hearts, and we know it's going to eventually lead to it coming out of our mouth. That is where sin starts. One of the first things that our children learn as we go through catechism is that violating God's law is anything, not that we do, anything that we think or we say or we do. And it continues to say in verse 6, she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. There you go. That's when it all falls apart. I think it's worthwhile noting that and this is, this is purely speculative. I wouldn't become dogmatic on this. I think this is where everything goes wrong. Because everything didn't fall apart as soon as Satan entered into creation. As soon as Satan took control of the serpent or whatever happened. Notice that the entire creation order didn't fall apart. Adam was given a role. Adam was given a clear position to be head of his wife, to be head of Eve, to be the one who carries out the creation mandate. And Adam sinned, I think we can make a very good point, that Adam sinned not just by, eat, not eat, by eating the apple, but by not protecting his wife in this sanctuary temple garden that was given for, to him to protect. Adam sinned by not protecting before he sinned with his hand and his mouth. In one way, shape, or form, he was not being a good steward of creation. In one way, shape, or form, he was not being a good head of his wife. In one way, shape, or form, he was not being a good ambassador for God. In one way, shape, or form, he was not being a good priest of the temple that God had given him to look over. It's interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 13, as God is giving commands to the priests, how they ought to operate, how they ought to function, how they ought to administer God's tabernacle, this I mean, as, as glorious as the tabernacle is, as wonderful as the temple is going to be, it is nothing compared to the Garden of Eden. You have to remember that. that the, the Garden is this beautiful, picturesque place, and the, the tabernacle is a cloth reproduction of it in many ways. And the priests were given, command, given, given charge of that to be stewards of it. And this is, this is, I think, worth noting, because this tells us something about God's law, which existed back in the Garden, which, which God was, was, was going to give in, in future generations, this is what he tells the priests. He says, if your brother, your mother's son or your son or daughter or the wife of you, that you cherish, the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known or the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not be willing to accept him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, and you shall not spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him and put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. There's a lot there to unpack, church. But the stewardship of God's garden, the stewardship of God's temple, the stewardship of God's meeting place with his people was meant to be so sacred that the expectation for his priests 
was that if someone were to try to entice them to follow other gods and go in the opposite direction that God had given them, that capital punishment was on the table. Again, there's a lot to unpack there. But this is God's standard. This is God's standard for Adam. Now, again, so many speculative, should Adam have killed Eve? Boy, oh boy, that'd be a conversation to have. I'm not going to go that far. But should Adam have protected Eve? Absolutely. Should Adam have been there? Of course. Does that mean that Eve was frail and incapable of doing these things herself? No, in fact, she held her own against Satan's first line of questioning. But Adam was either not present physically or not present in a defending, protecting, stewarding way. We don't know, but we know that Adam's sin is what incurred the judgment that was brought on by God. There's so much that, that flows out of this. So much that we hear about in the New Testament regarding male headship and regarding the relationship for men and women. We'll be talking about that next week as we talk about the curse. But this is an essential thing that we need to understand. But notice that the sin of the fall was tied up in freedom, church. Freedom from constraints. How many constraints did Eve have on her? She couldn't fly. She couldn't breathe underwater. This is, again, speculative theology. I don't think she could fly or breathe underwater. She couldn't do those things. There's a lot of things she couldn't do. But most things she could do. Eat, go, experience relationship with her husband, experience relationship with her God. She couldn't eat of the fruit. And so the sin of the fall was tied up in freedom. She freed herself. Adam freed himself from the constraints of the one binding law that God gave them. We talk about freedom and we always give it positive, good connotations. But if you're walking on the sidewalk of a busy street and your child gets freedom from your hand, it is not good. And every parent has felt that jolt in their heart when that happens. And you reach after them and grab them as quickly as you can. Have you ever been to Yosemite National Park? I have not. I've seen pictures. There's geysers there. Yes? Right park I'm talking about here? Geysers? And there's boardwalks. Those boardwalks constrain you. They limit you to where you can go as you wander about these thermal pools and you see the beautiful colors of all of the different min minerals that are heated to certain temperatures. And as you walk through these boardwalks, you are limited. Your national parks, your tax dollars going to the establishment and the maintenance and the salaries of these rangers, and you, they have the audacity to limit you to these boardwalks as you walk through these thermal pools and geysers. Wouldn't freedom be great? Every once in a while, somebody decides to have freedom. And they keep helicopters on hand to medevac them to the hospital where their third-degree burns can be treated. And, more, and unfortunately, frequently, people and pets don't make it out after they seek freedom from the boardwalks that have been established through these thermal pools. The freedom from constraints is not true freedom, church. Freedom from truth doesn't work either. Freedom from truth. This is what our culture's big struggle is. 
trying to be free from truth. These are biological realities. These are ontological realities. This is the way that creation has been structured. And we try to separate ourselves from that. How is that working out for us? And ultimately, it all is an attempt to be free from God. With God as that presupposition, that first fact, that first thing, the thing that we must know, this is how Genesis chapter 1 started, in the beginning, God Freedom from that fact is not only impossible, but attempting to be free from that fact is the futility that leads people down to deeper and deeper levels of depression and depravity. It is impossible to be free from God, just as it is impossible to be free from air. It's impossible to be free from standing on the ground that you're standing on. It's impossible to be free from being in your skin. These things are things that are true. And attempting to rid yourself from that truth only leads to pain and to death. Adam and Eve seeking freedom from the constraints laid on them by a good God. Truth given to them, revealed to them by a good God. And God himself is what led to the sin of the fall. True freedom and true liberty always have safeguards. That's why God gave parents to children and children to parents. That's why God gave us a church. That's why God gave us civil government. That is why God gave us his word. This is the nature of a good king's covenant. Here are my laws. Here are the aspects of our relationship. Do this, and here is blessing. Don't do this, and there will be cursing. But Adam broke that covenant. So the lie of the fall, the sin of the fall, and then we'll close. Oh, I'm sorry I said that. We'll wrap up with, that's still kind of leading you on, isn't it? The last thing we'll talk about, which may take a few minutes, is the shame of the fall. The shame of the fall. And the eyes, it says in verse 7, of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Notice their new freedom didn't bring liberation. Immediately, immediately they saw a problem. Their new freedom didn't bring liberation. Guilt was the new sensation. Your eyes will be opened. Their eyes were open, and they thought there was a problem. They knew there was a problem. There was guilt and alienation between each other. Who was looking at them? The snake was there, I guess. And there's other animals, probably. But they felt guilt and alienation as they faced one another. Adam and Eve, who had been in perfect relationship as the man and the helper given to man, the flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, the perfect relationship now was was imbued with guilt and alienation such that they had to cover themselves as they faced one another. And soon it led to guilt and alienation as they came face to face with their God. We see that in verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. One quick word on, on, on the language being used here. Remember we talked a few weeks ago how Genesis 1 uses the term Elohim. Talks about God. 
talks about the creator God. It talks about the, 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 the God in, in contradistinction from all of the false gods that would have been present at the time when Genesis was being written to the Israelite people. But as we move to Genesis 2, we go from seeing God in a cosmic sense to seeing God in a personal sense. And that's why your Bible and your translation might say the Lord God. This translation simply uses the, 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 the Hebrew word for Yahweh, that personal I am God. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden. That personal God, the face-to-face God, the presence God was the one who had come in. And we don't, under, again, we don't get all the pictures. We don't know if this was the normal experience, that in the cool of the day, or, or sometimes rendered the spirit of the day, in the day, did God usually come and walk with his people? This seems to be probably what happened because this was meant to be the meeting place, the temple garden, if you will, the, the front porch of God from his cosmic temple to his earthly temple. But their new experience was not meeting him in some sort of good way. Their new experience was the fear and the presence of a holy God. They experienced for the very first time what gets talked about over and over and over again, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and something we're actually waiting for still, which is the day of the coming of the Lord. We think about that today as a thing of terror, a thing that will come and will not be good for those who are not in right relationship with God. The coming of the Lord. This is the very first time that mankind experienced the coming of the Lord. Because Yahweh God stepped down into his creation and Adam had it right. He hid. He did not boldly go before the throne. He did not boldly walk up before the presence of God. He hid, albeit probably behind a bush. At least, again, that's the way it's illustrated in the children's books. He hid. Because he knew that there was no longer right relationship between himself and God. By hiding from God, by hiding from the presence of Yahweh, they got it right. But they couldn't make it right. Verse 9 says that Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, "I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? I think the first question worth asking is, does God not know where Adam is? Does God not know that Adam ate the fruit? Again, there's so many wonderful analogies between parent and child. In a a very derivative way, the creator-creation distinction is mirrored in parent and child. Do you, as a parent... Or maybe you as a boss ever ask questions that you know the answer to? Absolutely. Sometimes it's sad. Sometimes it's very gratifying. Who ate the cookie? And they have crumbs on their face. Who was walking in the, in the back? Who was walking through the house with their shoes on when you know there's only one kid in the house that has feet this big? Why do we ask questions like that? We know the answer, but we want them to know the answer as well. Because that's how we learn. That's how we, we own things. That's how we come to appreciate the gravity of the situation. 
Do you know why I pulled you over? The officer says, no, officer. We know good and well why he pulled us over. Does God not know? God is gracious. God is patient. God is long-suffering. And so by ask, even asking this question, think about this. The, the patience and grace of God, if he would have asked this question, and as Adam began to formulate the thoughts that would turn into the, the, the muscle movements to make his vocal cords vibrate and answer him, God could strike him dead and he would have been perfectly justified. Perfectly justified. The same is true of every one of us when we sin. But God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is gracious. He talks. He interacts. He doesn't strike. I think that's the most profound aspect of this interaction, this first interaction between God and Adam. Continuing in verse 12, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice the first response is often our first response. No accountability, blame shifting, trying to skirt what we did and pass it off on someone else or our upbringing or our culture or systemic injustice or any sort of issue that we can easily latch onto so far as we can move it from us and outwards. But it reveals is brokenness. The shame of the fall reveals brokenness. Brokenness in man. The inability to, 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 to take personal responsibility. The inability to understand what we've done. The inability to, to deal with the problems that have come from the sin that we inherit and the sin that we willingly run to enjoy. But the shame of the fall also reveals brokenness between men. Adam points at Eve. Eve probably didn't take that very well. We're going to see here in a minute that that's kind of the nature of things moving forward. Brokenness between men. Not to spoil the story, but their two first kids, one of them kills the other one. They go off and create cities and wars happen. Brokenness between man happens. But I think most significantly, the shame of the fall reveals brokenness between man and God. And of course, all the children of Adam and Eve, every one of us, experience these levels of brokenness. Brokenness internally, brokenness in community, and brokenness in relationship with God. And again, it's not simply something we inherit. We can't say, this isn't fair. I wasn't there. I wasn't in the garden. If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Have you sinned today? Have you sinned this week? As we use the example of the child, sit still for an hour. It, it, knowing clear and fully that we shouldn't do something, have we performed flawlessly, imperfectly, in a pristine state of sanctification for this morning or this week? And the answer is no, because we don't simply inherit sin. We willingly participate in sin. We are sinners because we sin. And we sin because we are sinners. Romans 5.12, we read already this morning, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So next week, and kind of a cliffhanger here, we'll discuss more 
the curse that came from the fall? What were the immediate ramifications of the brokenness in man, between men, and between men and God? But I think it's worth mentioning as we wrap up and move to the the supper and then to baptism that we can't fix this on our own. Lying, sinning, and shame are kind of part of who we are as children of Adam and Eve. But in Christ, there is never a lie. In Christ, there is never sin. And in Christ, there is no shame. I think it's important to remind ourselves that whereas Adam had this perfectly manicured, perfectly designed garden in which he was unable to resist the temptations and the wiles of the devil, Jesus, after 40 days in the wilderness, without food and without otter, was able to resist the devil. Adam failed in luxury. Jesus succeeded in humility. And that is why he is our new head. That is why his atonement is applicable to all those who believe. In Christ, in his honesty, in his purity, in his glory, the brokenness is restored internally in us, in community with each other, and most importantly, with God. Because Paul goes on to argue in Romans chapter 5 that for if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I'll end with this quote. One more church father, Gregory of Nyssa, says this about the fall and about salvation. The remedy, just like the poison, has to enter the system. Similarly, having tasted the poison, that is the fruit, that dissolved our nature, we were necessarily in need of something to reunite it. Such a remedy had to enter into us so that it might be by its counteraction unto the harm the body had already encountered from the poison. And what is this remedy? Nothing else than the body that proved itself superior to death, and because of that, the source of our life. I love that imagery, that through the consumption of the forbidden fruit, we were poisoned, but through the imputation of righteousness of Christ, we are made whole. It requires consuming. It requires taking something in. And so much of what we're about to remember as we celebrate the Lord's Supper is about that. Now, this little bit of wine and this little cracker isn't the physical thing that counteracts the effects of that fruit that was consumed by our forefathers countless generations ago. But in it, we have the remembrance of the true blood and the true flesh that we must consume in Christ. That sin that we were willing participants of was wiped away to all those who believe by the once and for all work of Christ on the cross. And so he invites those who accepted him. He invites those who are his He invites his children to come to his table to be reminded of that sacrifice, to be reminded of the goodness that comes as we are in communion, restored communion, communion that had been broken in the garden, but that was redeemed and restored on Calvary. 
So in a, in a moment, Justin's going to come up and lead us in a song. And as he does so, I'd invite you to come up and to receive the cracker and receive the juice and bring it back to your table, or excuse me, bring it back to your chair, and we will take part in the Lord's Supper together. But let me pray first. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at a dire moment, perhaps the dire moment in human history. But we're also thankful that there was a moment that transcends it in bleakness. And that in the cool of the day, when Adam ate that fruit, that thousands of years later, the day was blackened, the earth shook, the temple was shaken, and your son was crucified on a cross. Whereas Adam sinned and suffered the just consequences, your son, Jesus Christ, in flesh, taking on the form of a man, did no wrong thing, yet suffered on behalf of a fallen race. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you showed to Adam. We thank you for the grace that is poured out through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him, we can now be identified with the new man and be reconciled to you. So as we come to the supper, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds. In his name, amen.